It's, uh, <clears throat> you know how I knew it was time for me to come up here? Uh, I knew that because Taylor did this. And when he did that, I knew that was time for me to come up here. Anytime a cool trumpet player does that, it gets, gets my attention. So I'm like, bring it. Yeah, that's cool. All right. I just felt like I got cooler because I got to come up after he did that. So uh, we're going to finish up uh, Ruth today. We're going to look at Ruth uh, chapter 4, uh, verses 18 through 22. Let me warn you ahead of time, it's uh, genealogy. A lot of weird names, a lot of people uh, you only hear about uh, maybe at Christmas when we read the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, so um, if we had been writing this story, we would have finished it off last week with the baby sitting on Naomi's lap because that's way more interesting than a bunch of names that we can't pronounce and we don't care about. Thankfully, we're not God. So in light of that, I'm going to read to you Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. The text is printed in the bulletin and also up on uh, the screens behind me. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse, Father David. So uh, a couple of things to, to keep in mind as, as we look at this is we read this text and we think, well, if, if, if this is such a sweet love story, it's such a wonderful love story, why would you end the, the book on this kind of thing? You know, it's like it's almost as if um, it's kind of a letdown. It's kind of a, you know, let's just end the story with the little baby boy sitting on Naomi's lap. And everybody's happy, uh, and yet we end it with this genealogy. Well, uh, to the people who first received this, who are culturally very different from us, uh, Westerners, and uh, that's many of us who are in this room, uh, view uh, the individual as central, and we view ourselves as autonomous uh, standing alone individuals, whereas much of the rest of the world views family. And when we say family, not just, you know, the cleavers there and then in your, in your house, but the, the, the generations of your family as telling a lot about your identity, speaking a lot about who you are and, uh, uh, giving us a clue about what your life uh, is like and, and, and that those things matter and that you feel a real kinship and connection with that. <clears throat> For many of us, most of us, I would, I would venture to guess, you probably don't know uh, who your family is past your grandparents or maybe your great-grandparents, right? Unless you've done Ancestry.com, 1999 a month, costs money. Uh, or if you're really cool, you can do the DNA thing where you swab your thing and send it in. We've thought about that. It costs money, too. I'm against spending money on stuff like that. And um, uh, But I, 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 I thought it would be interesting to know that, to see if the genealogical research we've done about our family squares with what our DNA says. That would be interesting. But then I decided, no, it costs money. 
And uh, did I mention that it costs money? And then, then the other thing that we I, I thought about that is, do I really want to know? Do I really want to know? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, and then, you know, the conspiratorial part of me decided, do I want anybody else to know? <laughs> who else? Who else might have access to that information? Right? I don't know if I want them knowing what my DNA looks like or not. So, as you as you think about this, that's one of the things that's so important about uh, about this story. And so, we have to. One of the things that that is good for us is we we as Christians, as believers, as folks who are a part of the body of Christ, who are connected to him, what we would like to think about it, uh, and what many of us think is, you know, Christianity was kind of dull and dead and kind of boring until our brand of Christianity came along, and then it got exciting again. Uh, one of the reasons why we say the creed here on Sunday mornings is not only that it gives us a way to express the truth, not only that it gives us a way to agree together about what the truth is, but to remind ourselves that that what's happening here this morning, that the stream that we stand in is centuries, even millennia old. And that's important. That matters. You know, that's there's there's some value in that. You know, we tend to think new and improved is the way to go. Well, frankly, maybe it is, but maybe it's not. <laughs> right? Uh, there's, there's a lot to be learned about uh, the stream of history that we stand in and why things are, and, and that these people who went before us lived lives of importance and significance, that God was faithful to them, and as we can look and see how God was faithful to them, we can get a clue about how he'll be faithful to us, but not only about how he'll be faithful to us, but how he'll be faithful to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. So it's important to look at this, and it's important to see how this genealogy places this story and places these people in this story in a bigger story, in a bigger narrative. Um, it's important. It's, so it's worthwhile to look at that. We, we actually have done some genealogical research. And one of the things, uh, as somebody who's from North Carolina, one of the things that is a big deal in our family and has been a big deal uh, for as long as I can remember is that uh, a number of my ancestors, uh, three in fact, uh, were at and were uh, um, in some sort of way having some sort of authority at the Battle of King's Mountain. Now, people in Virginia, they don't know anything about the Battle of King's Mountain. They don't really care about that because, you know, we're Virginians after all, and if it didn't happen here, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Right? Right? But it's a big deal where I come from, so much of a big deal that there, there has been a dispute in history over whether King's Mountain, it was a battle uh, during the Revolutionary War, whether it was in South Carolina or North Carolina. There was a big, big, big disagreement about that. Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. There was a guy, a colonel named Ferguson uh, in the British Army during the Revolutionary War, and he decided he was going to get together a handful of British soldiers, but even more uh, Americans who were loyal to the king, and he was going to train them and arm them, and they were going to go across the mountains, and they were going to kill all the patriots that were there, burn their houses down, burn their farms down. Now, the guys, my ancestors, who lived on the other side of the mountain, did not like that. 
and were discouraged that he would do that. So they got together and decided, well, let's go get to him before he gets here. And so they surrounded him on King's Mountain and in about an hour dispatched him and many of his soldiers. Now, what happened at the end of the battle is really interesting because there were a lot of um, a lot of wounded people and a lot of uh, people who were captured. A dispute broke out in my family between a dad and his two sons about what to do with the prisoners. I will not tell you what side of the family I'm on uh, in that <laughs> in that dispute, uh, but apparently it was a big deal and. Uh, uh, one member of my family had to be restrained from uh, doing some pretty bad things. So it helps explain a lot about our family, actually. So, um, so to know those things and to see those things are something that is, uh, is, is pretty valuable and pretty important for us. So as we said last week, that this story of Ruth is a love story. Uh, a love story between Naomi and God, ultimately, not just between Ruth and Boaz, but really a story about God loving the widow, God loving the poor, God loving the disenfranchised. And and the question that was raised at the beginning of the book was, how is God going to deliver this poor, bitter, angry, turned in, dried up widow? And he does it by providing for her through her Moabite daughter-in-law. So, but what this genealogy tells us is that more than that, that this is a love story between God and his people. Because what you have to see is how this story situates itself in the bigger story of what God is doing. What, what we have to see here is, is that God had made a promise, uh, to Adam and Eve in the garden that, that a child would come, uh, through the, through the woman who had crushed the serpent's head and that God had made a promise to Abraham that in him and through his family, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so what we have to see here is, is that what's this story of this, uh, Israelite backwater with this small little family and, and the gleaning and the, the, the work that goes on there, this is an important story, not because these people in and of themselves did great things, but because a great God saw them and redeemed them and used them to be faithful to the promise that he had made to redeem a people for himself and to provide a redeemer, someone who would come in the flesh to live their life, to die their death, to rise again, and to provide for them ultimately uh, the eternal kingdom of God. And so, so this, this little story here of Ruth is more than just the story of how God provided for widows, as important as that is. It is more to us than how God used a Moabite for uh, the purposes of, of his redemption. It's more than that. What it is, is it's telling us that nothing could keep God from the determination that he has had for millennia, indeed from eternity past, to save a people for himself. To be a God to us. And so as we look at this, that's the way we have to see this. And that's, that's why the writer to the, to, who wrote this story ends it with this genealogy. Next slide, please, Becky. So we have to see how this fits 
in the bigger narrative of the Bible. So Judges, which is the book that comes before this, and we remember we talked about this back in November when we started this. The last book before Ruth tells us at the very end, in fact, the last verse, is in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And Ruth begins with, in the days of the judges. And that is to tell us, yep, remember that time, back in the day when there was no king in Israel. You can read the book of Judges, some of the most prurient, ugly, depraved, debauched stories in the Bible are in the book of Judges. Just got your interest, didn't I? And and um, what you will see in the book of Judges is that there is a cycle where the people of God rebel. They forget about him. God never forgets them. Things get so bad, they cry out for a deliverer. God brings them a deliverer, and they get delivered for a while. Uh, and then they forget God. Things get bad. They need a deliverer. Now, there's a cycle that's like that. But the problem is, each judge that comes uh, is a lesser judge than the judge before. And each pit of depravity and independence that the people fall into gets a little deeper. And so, so as we read this story, and it says that, that, uh, in those days there was no king in Israel, the problem with Israel was not so much that, that they didn't have a king, but they thought they needed a king, and they needed because they were rejecting God as their king. And so God acquiesces and brings to them a king. And so the first king that they have is the guy that's head and shoulders taller, good looking, strapping, uh, young man named Saul, who ends up being a terrible king. But then we read here that David would succeed him, right? Because at the end of this book, as we read this uh, um, genealogy is, and Jesse fathered David. So the days when there was no king in Israel are coming to a close. And in fact, this story is told not just to remind us that God cares for widows, but that God cares for all of his people. And he brought to them a king, a good king, the kind of paradigm king, for all the other kings that would come after him, and his name was David. So the people needed a king, and God would provide that. Next slide. So, But the story doesn't end there, right? So it's not just about David. It's about David's greater son. So we see this genealogy carried on in Matthew chapter 1 all the way to Jesus. Now, the people needed a king, yes, But they needed a king who could do more than rule. They needed a redeemer. Because what you have to see about David is that David was a miserable failure as a king. Let me say that again. David was a miserable failure as a king. Started out great. And things went south. And you think, well, wait a minute. I I thought thought he he was a good king. He repented, yes. But he was a failure. And in fact, what we read as a result of his his most grievous sin is God let him live and God let him finish out his reign and God let one of his children uh, sit on his throne. But God also said, the sword will never depart from your house. His kids killed each other, abused one another. And within that family, so and, and as a result of his sin and that curse, the seeds were sown that the kingdom would be split apart. One of the things that we don't, often don't think about that is, is that for most of the Old Testament period, there's Israel and there's Judah, two separate kingdoms, one people. 
a failure. All of them failed, right? But what we have to see is, and what this story reminds us of, not just that there was human failure, but there was a God behind all of this, and through every stage and every step and every day and every year and every decade and every century and every millennia, there was a God who was at work to bring about his purpose, to fulfill his promise to redeem his people. So that when we get to Matthew and we read the genealogy and Ruth and, and Boaz and Obed and Jesse and all of them are there, we read that Jesus will come and you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So what we read about that, what we see there is, is that, that this purpose of God, that what he has been about and what he has been doing all of this time comes to fruition finally in the birth, not just of David, but in the birth of David's greater son, Jesus Christ, who would be our redeemer. And that God was was working throughout all of these centuries and all of this time to bring about, to bring to fruition, to bring to completion the very promised redemption that he had given his people. Next slide. But you see, as we hear that, and as I say that to you, I know that for most of you, you think big deal. Big deal. I don't care about that. I like the love story. I like what the, the shenanigans on the threshing floor. I like, I like, spread your wings over me, Boaz. <laughs> right? That's what we like. We like that part of the story. Or, or, or maybe we like the part where, you know, this sweet picture of Naomi bouncing this boy who's not really her grandson, but who she acts like is her grandson on her lap and everybody's happy. Well, what can we learn about this? Well, this is a very important story for people like us. Because of the redeeming work of Jesus, there are no small or insignificant people. Right? Now, now we know that and we say that and, 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 and we see that as, as something that, that is so important, right? But, but the fact is, what you have to see about this story is that a Moabite widow who commits her life and destiny to her bitter mother-in-law becomes a central part of the work of God. What you have to see about this is, is that Ruth, what little she knows about God, drives her to say, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. Where you go, I'll go. Where you're buried, I'll be buried. And so she commits herself and she gets up in the morning when her mother-in-law is so depressed and unable to do anything. And she goes out into the field and she happens to go by the unseen hand of God to the field of Boaz. And Boaz sees her. And then Boaz marries her. And through that union, we have the genealogy that leads us to Jesus. But you see, what we think about this is, is that honestly, you know, um, we want, we want our name. We want our status to be like Ruth. We want to come from nowhere and then have everybody know who we are, right? That's the way we want to be. But the, but you see, what you have to see about that is we get to find out a little bit about Ruth and we get to find out a little bit about Boaz. But what do you know about Aminadab? 
He's in here. Aminadab. Uh, he's just a name on the page. Well, we don't have Ruth and Boaz if we don't have Aminadab. So the way we think about this is, you know, we, we, this, this ties in so profoundly to the way we think about our lives and the way we think about significance, right? Um, we read this story and we think, I want to be like Ruth because if I'm like Ruth, I can be significant. Now, let me, let me just say what I, what I mean by this. Um, I think many of us are on a hunt for significance. And the reason why we're on a hunt for significance is because we're afraid that we're insignificant. Or we're afraid that no one will notice. Or we're afraid that somebody's not going to pay attention or affirm us. Or we're afraid that somehow or other we'll get missed. Well, um, and that's why you post something on your uh, social media account And then you keep going back to it to see how many likes, comments, shares you get. I don't have a Facebook page. Uh, The reason why I don't have a Facebook page is I did once, and these girls that I dated in high school started friending me. And I thought, I am not doing that. I am going to disappear. Uh, so my, my wife has a Facebook page that I have access to. And so periodically, I'll post things on her Facebook page. <laughs> so last week, I posted an essay about the value of cursive writing. And let me tell you, that wrecked the Internet. People were like, that's the greatest thing I've ever read. Right? So important. This is so significant. It changed my life. <laughs> right? I have an Instagram account. And the reason why I have an Instagram account is not because of anything in particular, except that my kids have Instagram. And it's a way for me to keep up with them because Facebook is for old people. And Instagram is for middle-aged people. Because there's, there's other things that I just, I'm like, I don't have time to do Snapchat or well, some of those other things. I just don't have time to do that. So I do have an Instagram thing. Somebody came up to me the other day in the gallery and said, our daughter said, we really need to follow you on Instagram. You know, because of course, if you follow Steve, there's going to be, you know, the verse of the day or something like that. Well, it's not that. It's pictures of food, mostly. <laughs> And the, the spiritual stuff in there is like, Jesus, thank you for bacon. Or, uh, you know, Lord, I'm really glad for this barbecue. You're good to me. So, um, but the fact is that feeds into this drive that we have to not be invisible. Now, let me tell you what's wrong with this. And let me help you understand why it's idolatry. And why we should laugh at it. And then we should ask God to do some work in our hearts. Because here's what's really awful about that is, is that I give to the internet or to my followers the power to say whether or not I'm significant. Right? 
when what we read and what we see in the gospel is this, that our significance is not found in these things, but found in the fact that Jesus Christ from eternity past set his love upon me and operated and worked and moved and caused things to happen in history such that I would be redeemed and that though one day I will be forgotten by all of these people and all of these people, our names will ultimately get washed off of our tombstones and there won't be anybody around who has any memory or or knows anything about us and yet we're in God's story. And he knows us. And one day he will call us by name because he knows our name and because he has written our names in blood in his book of life. And he will call us to be with him forever. He will take our faces in his hands. He will wipe the tears from our eyes. And he will say, Steve Shelby, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your father's rest. Now, the problem with that is my brain is wired not to value that. My brain is wired to value the quick and instant surge that I get from a like. There's research on this, and it's addicting, right? So rather than say, What really matters is that God loves me. What really matters is that God loved me so much. He got Ruth up out of the bed that morning and sent her, just happened to send her into a field where Boaz's men were were working and where Boaz would come and see her and that they would see each other. They would fall in love with each other. And through them, David would come and through David would come Jesus Christ, my Savior. That's significant. And that he would use and come through all of these nameless, faceless people to bring about this promise that he gave millennia past to redeem a people to himself. So, so what does this mean for us then? What is this? How does this leave me? How, what am I supposed to do then in light of this? Listen, you have significance because of the identity that Jesus Christ has given you. You matter. You matter eternally. You matter because Jesus Christ has redeemed you. He will not forget you. You are on his heart and on his mind. Your name is written in his hands. You matter. Don't try to matter. One of the things that uh, most of us, many of us think about is we want to do something that matters. Well, let me tell you, stop it. Stop trying to do something that matters. Just do what's in front of you to do in light of the love of God for you. Love the person in front of you. When we read in the scriptures about loving the alien, what does it say about him? It says love the alien within your gates. The people who are in proximity to you. Put yourself in proximity of somebody who needs to be loved. You don't even have to do that. You're doing it right now. Don't worry about greatness. Don't worry about significance. And don't worry about whether somebody sees you do it. You have the love of God. You've been set free by the gospel. Just love the people in front of you. You're free to do that. 
that is, that's, that is how the kingdom of God, the eternal work of God, the passion that God has for this planet works itself out in day to day life. Don't be a movement starter. Just be somebody who loves somebody. Like Ruth loved her bitter, angry, depressed widow of a mother-in-law. She just loved her and she just tied herself to her. And God used that to redeem you. Thirdly, the Lord's not going to stop in his determination to redeem. And one of the things that you have to see about this is, is that because of that, He takes the long view of life and eternity. And we need uh, to see the gospel as something that's not just a quick and easy payoff, but it's the long-term work that God's doing in this planet. Again, it's a totally countercultural thing for us because we like things to be quick. We like results to come pretty quickly. Um, one of the, one of the things that is so tempting for me and has gets over my conscience and is such a killer to me this time of year is uh, all the ads on TV for weight loss. Nobody says try our plan. It's really hard. <laughs> Nobody says if you try our plan, you'll learn discipline. Nobody says if you do it our way. Your character will be built. No. What they say is, this is easy. Look, buy our product, eat our way, and do what we tell you to do, and you'll lose 15 pounds in the first month. Now, they don't say in a month. They say in the first month. Why? Because they want you on the second month and the third month. Because if you can lose 15 pounds in the first month, look at how many you can lose in the 16th month. Right? Right? And then you're a real customer. Right? That's exactly. So, so we read that and we think, wow, I could lose 15 pounds in the first month. I am so tempted to do that. I tell, I tell Marty, I'm like, we need to do that. We should do that. And her thing to me is, well, why would you want to do that? I'm like, cause I can lose 15 pounds in a month and I'm an overachiever. I bet I can do it in three days. <laughs> right? And she always very wisely says to me, well, you know, it costs money and you know how you feel about that. (laughs) A and B, wouldn't it just be better to change your lifestyle a little at a time to get healthy over the long haul? I'm like, who wants to do that? That's dumb. Let's do this right here. This looks this looks cool. And look how good I'll look. Don't you want to see me in a bathing suit like these people? Right. I'm going to look great. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I need to stop that. But the, <laughs> the, the the thing about it is that when we look at this, we see that our God has been at work to redeem a people for himself forever. Forever. And that he will continue to do that forever. That he doesn't stop, that he doesn't take a break, that nothing gets him sidetracked. And that bit by bit, inch by inch, the kingdom of God is established. Bit by bit, inch by inch, the light is driving out the darkness. 
bit by bit, moment by moment, century by century, millennia by millennia, the kingdom of God is coming. It is coming. Jesus is faithful, and he is faithful over the long haul. We can trust him, and we can look for him to accomplish his purpose over time, forever and ever. As we come to the Lord.